0: Hola, and welcome to Latino Book Chat. I am your host, Cristian Meneses Jacobs. We invite you to participate in our conversations with Latino authors, illustrators, and others who share their insights into the book publishing industry. Aja's family was ravaged by the Holocaust and found freedom in the Dominican Republic. An adopted Dominican, Aja is determined to tell the stories of refugees, and survivors, and to bring to light the stories of those who have triumphed over oppression, from Hitler's Germany to Soviet Russia, from Trujillo's dictatorship in the Dominican Republic to Castro's Cubas, to the struggles of two people in the Holy Land and beyond. He's the author of mystery, thriller, and historical fiction books. His works include The Interpreter and the Forgiving series such as Forgiving Maximo Rothman, Forgiving Stephen Red- Redmond, and Forgiving Mariela Camacho. His new novel, Incident at San Miguel, a thriller set during the Cuban Revolution, was released May 19. A.J. spends the winters in the Dominican Republic where he writes and develops new ideas for both full length and short stories. Latino Bookshop welcomes A.J. Sidransky. Thank you for chatting with us today.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.
0: I very much enjoy your novel, Incident at San Miguel. It is set in December of 1958 in La Habana, Cuba. Can you tell us a little bit about the story without revealing too much of the plot?
1: Of course. So, Incident San Miguel is a story of two brothers who find themselves on opposite sides of Castro's revolution. One dark night after rescuing a leader of the revolt who is under house arrest, one of these brothers finds himself hunted. The other, an influential attorney, must make a choice. Should he help his brother, placing the whole family at risk, or let Batista's forces capture him? This decision will haunt both of them for the rest of their lives. The question we pose is how far will we go to protect those we love? This is based on a true story about two, bro- two actual brothers, one of whom I met, the other is unfortunately deceased.
0: Mm-hmm. Incident
1: de San Miguel examines these questions.
0: I know from reading the story that the main characters are Jewish. Yes, that, they are. Yeah, very few people know that they are Jews in Cuba. And there was a very thriving community there. So I thought that was very interesting. So I wanted to know why did you decide to tell this story from the perspective of a Cuban Jewish family? And I wanted you to tell us how the story came about.
1: Okay, well, that's a, actually, it's a very interesting story. So uh, my debut novel, Forgiving Maximo Rothman, was published about 10 years ago in, in, in 2013. And it was based on the experiences of my great-uncle, uh, who escaped from, the, from Nazi Europe and went to the Dominican Republic. For those who are not aware of this, in 1938, there was a conference that was called by uh, President Roosevelt. It was in Avion, France. It was called the Avion Conference. At this conference, representatives of 28 nations came together to discuss what they were going to do about the growing and worsening problem of Jewish refugees in Europe coming out of Nazi Germany. Only the Dominican Republic offered to take a, a substantial number of refugees. They, t- they offered to take 100,000 refugees over 10 years, with 10,000 in the first year. Wow. Sadly, because the, the leadership of the international Jewish community was opposed to large numbers of Jewish refugees going anywhere but to the uh, British mandate in Palestine, this offer really never materialized. Only 854 Jewish Refugees Escaped the Dominican Republic. So when I published this book, I submitted it. It's a novel. It's just based on his experiences. I submitted the book to the Jewish Book Council, which uh, assigned it to a a woman named Miriam Bradman Abraham to write a review of it. And she loved the book. And it turns out she was a Cuban Jew. She was born in Cuba in 1960, and her family escaped a year later. She, for many years, had thought she might want to write a book about her family's experiences leaving Cuba. And uh, in the summer of 2019, just before the pandemic, uh, she asked me to look over her materials and uh, you know, tell me what I thought. Now specifically, she wanted to write a memoir. And I looked over what she had. There was 85-ish pages of material about the family history in Cuba and what had happened during the revolution. I said to her, "You know Miriam, you don't really have a memoir here." Uh, you might have, you know, sort of a family history, but a memoir is a very specific type of structure wherein it's a story of a specific person and they're telling their own story and they're talking about how a certain specific events change their life. And, you know, the sad part of this is that there's lots of interesting stories, but they're not, they're not big enough to carry a book. So, for instance, why is Forgiving Maximal Rothman both a historical novel and a murder mystery? Because the story of 854 unhappy Jews in their wool clothing in the tropics waiting to go to the United States just wasn't enough to carry a novel. Mm-hmm. So um, I looked. I said to her, look, you have some very interesting stuff here. Would your parents and would you be interested in chatting with me you know, in person? Perhaps I would consider writing a novel if it was okay with you based upon your information. She spoke to her parents, and she said, absolutely. And I went out to meet them. It was at the end of the summer in 2019. I immediately hit it off with her father, who was quite a character. You know, her father <laughs> was close to 90. Oh, and, wow. Yeah, and he was sharp as a tack. Now, he was, you know, he's, he's frail, but he's sharp as a tack. And mm-hmm. so I said to Miriam, I said, well, you know, how does he like to be addressed? Does he want to be called Juan or... Mr. Bradman or Senor Bradman. And she said, oh, Senor Bradman. And I said, okay, and does he prefer to speak in English or Spanish? She said Spanish. And I came in, I addressed him, Senor Bradman. And I, I, we spoke in Spanish and he opened up immediately. So once he got to the part about Che Guevara and his encounters with him, which I'm sure you and I'll talk about later yeah. on in mm-hmm. the program, uh, I knew I had a story. So why the story of Cuban Jews? Well, first of all, as you mentioned, there was a very thriving community in Cuba prior to the revolution. Now, you know, estimates range anywhere from 10 to 50,000 Jews. But the truth is that uh, there were around 15,000 practicing Jews in Cuba, mostly in Havana. Uh, They had three synagogues. And it's interesting because one of the people that I um, one of the people that I interviewed uh, he, he was born in the United States, but grew up in Cuba because his family had moved to Cuba for business reasons. And, they, and he grew up there. And as he says, there, there was a, an Ashkenazi community, a Sephardic community, an American community. So that these American Jews, you know, may have been Sephardic or they may have been Ashkenazi. But in fact, they sort of were a third community that was a, a based upon the fact that they had come from the United States. So there was this very successful community. And when you look at the pictures and hear the stories about their lives in the 1940s and 50s, it's like you're looking at pictures of the American Jewish community where they, you know, these are the children of immigrants who had come from, you know, either Lebanon or Poland or, you know, various places in the world. And they'd settled in Cuba and they'd become very successful. And they had the same sort of debutante coming out parties and fancy bar mitzvahs and weddings. And they had a a Jewish beach club and three very active synagogues. And they had a great life. It's interesting because what one Brown said to me was that when Castro was victorious and when, when the revolution occurred, they were all delighted. About two weeks later, they knew they knew they were in trouble.
0: Oh yes.
1: <laughs> okay, so everyone was happy for about two, yep. weeks. and then the trouble started. That that it's not that Jews the Jewish community was targeted because they were Jewish, because in fact that was not the case. There were a lot of Jews in the community who supported Castro. There were those who fought with Castro, like uh, uh, the Moazzez character, whose real name was Solomon Bradman, and. Mm-hmm. In fact, the problem was that they were mostly of the entrepreneurial class. So since they were of the entrepreneurial class, they be- as, as the revolution moved towards a socialist reality, they became targets of the mm-hmm. revolution. Yeah. And that's why they had to leave. That's kind of how I came upon the story and why I decided I wanted to write it. You know, I had written a lot about the Holocaust. I had written two books that were specifically about the Holocaust and one that was, so was a sequel to uh, Forgiving Max Rothen," called Forgiving Stephen Redmond, which is really about the post-Holocaust experience and the experience of Holocaust uh, child, uh, you know, child of survivors, and talking about that subject. But the reason I mentioned this is that I really um, had understood very thoroughly about um, the experience of the Holocaust, my own family, other families, and I'd written two books about it. And what I came to understand through writing this book was how similar the, mm-hmm. um, the social control systems that are used by fascist regimes and communist regimes, in fact, are. Yeah. That while they are based on different economic systems, the way that they handle their populations is exactly the same. And it's a very, very tough thing. You know, I, I to be fair and honest, and I mentioned this in my historical notes, I went into this project with a very left-wing view of socialism in the respect that I see the benefits of the system. And I felt that in many ways, socialist governments get a lot of bad press. And what I really came out of this understanding was that whatever good they've done for their people and their countries is kind of canceled out by the way that they handle the population. There is no mm-hmm. freedom. Yes. And freedom doesn't come cheaply. And that's kind of the, the, the me- one of the important messages here in this story.
0: Yeah. yeah. And especially, you know, there's no freedom of expression, no freedom of religion, like the basic freedoms speak against the government and you get thrown in jail. And exactly. Good luck if you come out.
1: <laughs> exactly. Never
0: you're ever released, especially from a Castro's jail. Forget it. You're there in there and you die there. Yeah. Jail. No, you're 100%
1: right. You know, it's very, very interesting that the place where I had this revelation was actually not in Cuba or in the Caribbean or in a Spanish-speaking country. In uh, September of 2021, I took my son on a trip to Europe, to Hungary, Slovakia, and the Czech Republic to see the Mm. places where my grandparents were born. So Mm. to make a very long story short, in, in Budapest, there's a museum called the Museum of Terror, which was the brainchild of a certain Viktor Orban who is the mm. poster child for modern fascism. And we went to this uh, museum and the museum is located in, in, a, in a former mansion that was the home of a very wealthy Jewish family prior to World War II. When the Nazis took over uh, Hungary in 1944, they requisitioned this house and they put the SS uh, headquarters and the torture chambers in the basement of this house. They, oh, they wow. took over the house. And when they, uh, when the communist government Throughout the Nazis in 1945, the, the communist secret police just simply moved into the house. So from this experience, it was not clearly not the message that I was supposed to get. But the yeah. message I got was that basically they're the same system. They use the same system of social control. And I was working on this novel at the time. And it was really enlightening for me to kind of understand so the circumstances of what was happening in Cuba at that time because of my experience at this museum a world away
0: hmm yeah. You know, it's the same idea behind Animal Farm.
1: Yes, you know, yes. It
0: happens, it's real, they become corrupt, and they become the same people that they try to overthrow. Exactly. Well, this is very interesting, and I know that you had that material from uh, those 85 pages, but do you have to do any extra research to write very convincing story? Because it does reflect a lot of the reality, of the struggle of the Cuban people in the time right before Castro takes over and the aftermath. Like to me, it's very realistic for what I've read about the Cuban revolution and my experience growing up under the Sandinista revolution in Nicaragua is very realistic. So I wanted to know if you had to do extra research for that.
1: The answer is yes, a great deal of research, which is why my next book is going to be about baseball. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't do the historical research. I, I need a break. I mean, I have a great idea for a novel, but, you know, it's based on, you know, that's sort of a, a Holocaust-related novel, but I, 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 can't, I can't take the research anymore. It's too disturbing. So my next book is about baseball. Well, with this, what I did was okay. I wanted to go to Cuba, but mm-hmm. Donald Trump made that impossible. So- uh,
0: right? I, we were on that cruise the week that he said Americans could not travel to Cuba anymore. And we were so lucky we're like oh my god we're so lucky we finally get to go to cuba and see it
1: well then you understand so we wanted to go to cuba but you know it was just not possible and Mm -hmm. i couldn't fight with the government trying to convince them that i was doing research you know and if you're doing research for a novel you can actually go to cuba but the I didn't have the time or the energy for the battling. I mean, I do, I do have a life. You know, I have, a, yeah. I have a wife and a job and, you know, <laughs> I couldn't, just couldn't do it. So yeah. I contacted everyone that I knew who mm-hmm. had any connection and also through Miriam, through her mm-hmm. family, I contacted close to 30 people. I did interviews of two, about two dozen people who were either Cuban American or born in Cuba, have families that come here, Jewish and non-Jewish. And, you know, the thing is that the stories are kind of so much the same. Some of them Mm -hmm. are very harrowing, though. But, you know, people are very honest about their experiences and what happened to them. So I did a lot of interviews and and the message that came to me was exactly what I was mentioning before, which is how it doesn't matter really what you call it. And I say this at some point in the book, Uh, I, I say, you know, it doesn't matter whether it Whose show trial it is, whether it's McCarthy or Stalin or, you know, Hitler or or if it's, um, you know, Trujillo or Castro, these systems all have the same thing going. Fascism, Mm -hmm. fascism. If it's got a socialist economy, we call it communism. But the simple fact of the matter is that it's it gets even frankly, it gets even past self-expression. It's a matter of towing the line. It's a matter of, of making sure that you not only fit in, but that you do everything properly. Under Batista, there was a group called BRAT, which is um, the Bureau for the Repression of, of Act- Actividades Comunista. But right after the revolution, and once the, once the path to, to socialism was declared, there was the Committee for the Defense of the Revolution. Oh, yes. <laughs> So, you know, your neighbors, your neighbors are informing on you. And I had had a lot of experience in these kinds of discussions because of other work that I had done. You know, I mean, simply if you know any of the history of East Germany Mm -hmm. and you know about the Stasi, you know, that 40 percent of the population and they had files on everybody. Forty percent of the population was informing on the other 60 Mm percent. You know, I, I remember years ago, I had a friend who had emigrated from Soviet Russia in the early 80s. He had a brother an older brother. And the deal was that the communists agreed to give them visas to leave the country and they could go to the United States if the brother stayed behind and he informed on other people in their family. And he had to do that for a certain number of years before they would finally give him permission to leave. So, you know, these kinds of systems, they're terrible systems. So I did a huge amount of research. And then I also did standard kind of regular research i got online and i googled everything you could possibly think of and i read and i read and i read and you know when people ask me this question about my book the interpreter i often tell them how you know how disturbing it was for me to uh, do that research during what was the 2016 election because there were just too many Mm. parallels to you know sort of uh, the rise of hitler and the rise of trump in this particular case i was doing this research during a pandemic. I had, I'd come up with the concept and I uh, and then the pandemic hit and I was down in the dr when the pandemic actually hit and then I came home and so I had a lot of time on my hands and I wanted to get the book done so I started doing research and you know to be in the house with the TV blaring all day about what's the latest statistics on how many people are dead while you're reading about this terrible repression that came on the, the people the, the Cuban people after Castro showed his true colors was you know it was a very high-stress kind of disturbing situation. I'm sure. And, and, you know, I also have to mention that, you know, doing the research into Batista, and that's pretty awful, too.
0: I mean, oh this guy
1: God. was no yeah. saint. Nobody mm-hmm. should take the position. You know, it's like Trujillo. You know, Dominicans today, 60, 70 years later, they look back at Trujillo and, well, you know, there was no crime and everybody had a job. And you know what? I was just down there and I had a whole conversation with someone down there about how Trujillo's Trujillo and his people stole, literally stole the mm-hmm. land that they owned from them to build roads. So, you know... Mm-hmm. That, well, now they have a road, okay, but they don't have their land.
0: Yes. <laughs>
1: you know, and so, you know, Batista was the same way. Batista was ridiculous. Was, the guy was incredibly corrupt and dangerous. And, you know, people would be shut. And and, and and Juan Bradman told me this. You know, you could be walking down the street. The goons would jump out of the car and they'd shoot somebody. Like the oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. well. It was not different, especially after there was an attempt on uh, on Che Guevara's life, in, I think 1961 or 62. After that attempt, the, it was exactly the same. That literally, the the you know the, the the government's forces could stop you on the street, grab you, and just drag you into prison, or you know shoot you on the street. I mean, it was the Wild West, and that's yeah. not a way anybody wants to live. So yeah, I did a huge amount of research, and as I said, that's why the next book is going to be about baseball. <laughs> I need a break.
0: I don't blame you, you know. But it's true, you know, it it starts as Animal Farm, and then it turns into 1984. Yes. It's so true. People think it's fiction, and I tell them, no, I live Animal Farm, and I lived 1984 when I was growing up in Nicaragua. It is true. This is reality. This is how this government starts.
1: You know, when you get into that position where you, you have literally one party rule, it always ends up the same way.
0: Yep, exactly. Yeah. Even though I enjoyed the story so much, I did a lot of crying too. <laughs> <laughs> I did my I job. I was very emotional, especially mm-hmm. how families become fractured by differing political alliances mm-hmm. because I remember when I was growing up when my uncles, my aunts, my cousins, you know, we would get together at family gatherings and everybody would start arguing because they were on opposite sides of the Nicaraguan revolution. You know, they were the ones who wanted the revolution and supported the Sandinista. And still they do to this day. And then the other ones that didn't. And those yeah. are the ones we left. So the main characters are very passionate about their beliefs. And this is a common occurrence in families when you were talking to your friend, right?
1: Yes, this is absolutely true. So, you know, the, 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 the thing is and I tried to portray this in the novel. OK, you know, you got to remember, I only really get one half the story from the interviews I do with her family, with Miriam's family, because her, her uncle was already dead. So I speak mm-hmm. to her father and her father talks to me about, you know, his view. And it's interesting because there were moments when you could see he was not sitting there in 2020 or 2019. He was back in 1958. You know, you could tell by his eyes. And, you know, I couldn't get his brother's point of view because the brother wasn't no longer alive.
0: Yeah. But
1: I was able to speak, as I said, with many people who had similar situations. And yes, it's no question that the, um, the passion was there. So in terms of the passion from, from the leftist side, from the communist side, I mean, to be fair, I understand the passion. I don't question the, the, the depth of belief in rightness that people who supported the revolution had. I think the question, the bigger question is, you know, what happens later? And which is why I structured the book the way I did, where the last quarter of the book really relates the, the Moisez character's story, where he looks at his own life over that period of 40 years under the communist system, and it's a cog in the, ca- in the machine of the communist system. And he has to really evaluate for himself did the system serve him? Did the belief system that he had, did it bring him what he needed and what he wanted? Did it make his life better? And You know, one of the things that I kind of reflect on there is, and and this is a little bit based on a personal experience. I mean, many years ago, I went to China. Uh, I'm telling you, many years ago, 1986. I think it was 1986. I took a trip to China. And I went with a small group of amateur photographers. And one of the things that I saw, which was sort of counterpoint to, uh, another trip I took to Peru was that in China, the children go to school. All the children are illiterate. They have top-notch medical care. You know, uh, some people get better medical care than others as an animal farm. Some pigs are more, uh, you know, are more equal than others. But, um, the fact of the matter is that in Peru, the poverty was so, t- Peru proved a terrible, you know, corrupt nation and terrible government. The 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 children aren't educated and there's no medical care and people live in the street. So, you know, you do look at this and say there are certain aspects of of what has happened in communist countries that, you know, is to be applauded, is to be, you know. Is, but on the other hand, has the system really served the Cuban people or the Chinese people for that mm-hmm. matter? Mm hmm. And the answer is in the end, no, because despite what improvements they have made, there is no freedom. And where are we if we do not have freedom? You know, to me, there's nothing more important than that. So should every child be educated? Should any child go hungry? Absolutely. Yes. Every child should be educated. No child should go hungry. No one you know, everyone who needs medical care should get medical care. Everyone who needs a place to live should have a place to live. And we need to fix those problems in our own society. But at the same time, the answer to doing that is not to target a specific group within the society and to deprive people of their, of their basic human rights. So, you know, yes, there's a lot of passion on the part of both characters. And if you saw that, then I did my job well. Yes. <laughs> that, that means that the reader the reader or the, in the case of the audiobook, the listener will get inside the head of the characters and really understand what they were feeling, what they were uh, what they're thinking about. And along, if I could, if I could just make one more comment along those lines, you know, people uh, often question me about, you know, why they should read fiction, historical fiction in particular. And as opposed to reading, say, a memoir or reading a history or a biography. And what I tell them very simply is that fiction can do something that these other forms of of literature cannot, which is that in fiction, the writer's job is to put you into the head of the character so that you can feel as close as possible. You can get as close as possible to the emotions that this character is experiencing. When this character is experiencing terror, I want you to feel terrified. When they're experiencing happiness, I want you to be smiling and laughing. When, when, they're, when they're experiencing you know, something terrible, I want you to cry as well. Mm-hmm. So that's why I say to people, read fiction. Read historical fiction. If you really want to know about a place before you go there, it's the closest way to experience the terror of or, or the beauty or, or the happiness of any particular moment.
0: Yeah, I felt very close to the characters. Like I, I was feeling what they were feeling and the anxiety and the passion. I'm
1: very happy to hear that.
0: You mentioned, you know, the part in the story where one of the characters comes face to face with the bigger than life Che Guevara. You yes. know, And I found that scene fascinating and I want you to tell us about it.
1: So this was the moment when I knew that I had a book here. So I go out to interview, I think it was the second... I went to meet with uh, Miriam's parents Miriam was there and you know I I have to say also that for Miriam it was it was an incredible experience and I taped it all I'm going to give her the tapes because like many survivor children she never heard the whole story in order she Mm. really she learned the story when I learned the story so we're sitting in his living in their living room and Juan says to me you know I want to show you something and he he sends the the home health aide into the bedroom to bring out a box, and he opens up this box. Into the box is a binder, and he opens the binder almost exactly to the page, and there is a document signed by Che Guevara. And I'm like, Oh
0: wow, is that
1: possible? Am I seeing the man's signature? Is that even possible? Because, you know, he is a larger-than-life character. Whether or not you agree with him, he led a very interesting life. You know, Mm -hmm. those who don't really know the story of Che Guevara, he was not Cuban. He was Argentine. He he was born in Buenos Aires. He was born to a very wealthy family. His father was a doctor, and I believe he was also a doctor. And he had this, this transformation on a bicycle trip which was made into a movie uh, sometime in the last 20 years or so called The Bicycle Diaries. And mm-hmm. he travels across Latin America from, uh, you know, through, through the Andes into Peru. What he experiences and what he sees transforms him into a communist. So, and then he goes to, uh, maybe it was Guatemala, it was Guatemala or, or Nicaragua, I can't remember. And, and he becomes a confirmed communist and he goes to Mexico where he meets Fidel Castro.
0: Yes, yes.
1: So, and then, you know, when, then he eventually goes to Cuba with Fidel Castro. So, so he was a very larger than life kind of guy. And even if you don't agree with his politics, his, his life story is very interesting. So when he starts telling me this story about, you know, what happened with him, and I don't want to give away too much because I want the the listeners to read the book. When Juan starts telling me about how he actually encountered him on a personal basis and what had happened and the position he was put into, um, I was like, Wow that's that's really the crux of this, the heart of the story right there you know you've come face to face mm-hmm. with the man who with, with the guy who who sort of put this into action because yes it was Castro's revolution but the truth really was that Che Guevara was the sort of the the executioner of what what Castro wanted he was the heart and soul mm-hmm. of the revolution he wasn't the front man so much as he was but there you know just to give you a little bit he was, uh, Juan, Juan actually worked as an attorney for the, um, and Juan is the Aron uh, character. So the Aron character works for the National Bank of, of Cuba, as did Juan. And he, when when Che Guevara becomes the uh, head of the National Bank of Cuba, he comes face to face with him.
0: Mm-hmm. And yeah. that
1: really is the eye opener. <laughs>
0: That was fascinating. I was like, oh, my God. When, when I found out it was really true, I was like, oh, my God, that must have been so nerve-wracking, you know, because like, oh, my God, it's exciting at the same time, I'm I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Come face to face with this man. Like I say, he's larger than life. He's like amazing. I, I would have been excited, even though I don't agree with anything he did, but. I would have been, oh, that's so cool. <laughs>
1: oh, me too. Absolutely. I would have been, you know, I was just unbelievable to meet Che Guevara. It's just, you know, it's, it's, like, it's yeah. like meeting Lenin, you know. Yeah. I think You may really yeah. not agree with Lenin, but wow, you know, I'd like to sit down and talk to him for a few minutes.
0: It's like history happening at that yeah. moment. Yeah. Exactly. You, know, sure you, you know, know, the idea of the revolution uh, led by guerrillas and overthrowing a powerful dictatorship has been romanticized a lot in literature. You know, so and I am a witness to that because I remember when I was a child in Nicaragua, a lot of Europeans would come to Nicaragua and come and experience the revolution. It was this romantic idea they had about it. And all I kept thinking was, yeah, because you are not living it, you know? (laughs) But it's very romantic. The idea is very romantic. So I guess it would be fitting that there is real romance happening at the same time in your story. Why did you choose to include a love story and why you thought it was important in the book?
1: So that's a lesson I learned very early on as a writer. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, first of all, what does it add? Okay. It adds a personal element that keeps readers sort of really tied into the story because they want to know what's going to happen. So I always include a little romance in all my novels. I mean, sometimes in some novels, the romance is is more center stage than in others. In this case, it's not exactly center stage because the center stage relationship here is the relationship between the two brothers. But Mm -hmm. for instance, in The Interpreter, the center Mm -hmm. stage relationship is between you know, uh, a seventeen, uh, an eighteen-year-old boy and a seventeen-year-old girl, mm-hmm. so who are both on the run from the Nazis. So that's you know, it, it keeps people reading. You know, in, in forgiving Maximo Rothman, this couple, as I mentioned, based on my aunt and uncle, who. In in truth, were uh, the they it was the result of a of an arranged marriage. And my uncle, when they lived in the Dominican Republic, they had some marital issues and they separated. And my uncle had a, a, a you know a long term relationship with a a Dominican woman. And it's important to sort of bringing the feeling of the novel closer, the feeling of the story closer to the reader, because while there's this big world stage. The reader also wants to know what the small stage is, you know, how this Mm -hmm. person gets through the day every day. How does this character live? What is the character feeling? And in this particular case, again, without giving away too much, the the relationship between the Moises character and his love interest is really central to what ultimately happens. Mm -hmm. And the decisions that he makes in terms of that relationship are very central to the the story. So I should say I will say this much: that the part of the story that deals with how his family, how Moises' family reacts to his relationship with this woman, Anna Teresa, is actually that's based on on real events. Mm-hmm. That his family did not approve of her.
0: Mm-hmm. I won't
1: go into why the reader, the, the listeners have to read the book.
0: Yep. Yep. To find <laughs> out
1: why, and it's it, and if you when you read the book, you're going to ask yourself the question. That's what they were thinking about? And the answer is yes, that's really what they were thinking about.
0: And I think it's very realistic, yeah. Thank you. you. I felt that the characters were so real to me when I was reading it. They were so real. So I wanted to ask you, who is your favorite character?
1: Who is my favorite character in this story? Well, you know, the thing is that I, my favorite character is really Beatrice because Mm. I know the real Beatrice and as much as I love both the Moises and Aaron characters, I think that it's the strength that Beatrice shows at a very, very critical point in the book Mm -hmm. where she has to make this step that is insane, okay? Mm -hmm. What she has to do is just crazy that, you know, readers are going to say this actually happened and the the truth is that this scene is, uh, yes, when she makes her big decision, it actually happened that way. Mm-hmm. And tough. It, it How does a woman do what she's asked to do? Yeah. I, it's it's brutal. So, yes, I, I, I feel a kinship with both the Aron and Moises characters based on the two real brothers. But I think that what she has to do, especially in the time that it happens with the, what the Beatrice character has to do mm-hmm. in 1960, it's not... It's not 2023, it's 1960. It's a pretty major thing for any woman to have to make a decision like that. So yeah, she is my favorite character. Yeah,
0: yeah, she was very strong. I know you prepared a scene for us that you're going to read.
1: Yes, I did. And this is not actually from the beginning. This is from the end of the first part of the book, the section of part one of the book, which is about 90 pages in. Aron didn't know which image was more shocking to him The birth of a revolution, or his brother standing on the platform with its leaders. His mind was in chaos. Batista was a cancer on the nation. He himself had fought his influence and corruption any way he could, but this? This was different. This was no ordinary coup. The military hadn't decided that it had enough of Batista's thieving and pillaging and sent him packing. These were the forces of change, real change. Yet Aron was uncertain. Castro had never declared himself to be a communist, but many of those around him had. Perhaps Castro would be the man of the hour. Perhaps he could unite the people and and the disparate political elements that had opposed Batista, both openly and secretly, into one united force for the good of the nation. Perhaps he would lift the people out of their never-ending grind of poverty. A part of Aron was terrified, another part jubilant. He he would give Castro and his people a chance. They deserved that much. Beatriz gripped his hand like a vice. He never realized her tiny, delicate fingers could have such force. He turned to her and took her in his arms. Are you frightened, he asked? Perhaps, she replied. We're witnessing history. I'm filled with both hope and fear. She kissed him gently on the lips. We have a new Cuba now. He smiled weakly. Yes. Nodding discreetly toward the speakers on the platform, he added, Do you see who is there? Beatrice squinted in the uneven light, standing on her tiptoes to see over the heads in front of her. There, to the left of the woman with the bullhorn, Aaron said, Moises, she whispered. It's not that I didn't expect it, but I didn't think he was high up enough in the movement to warrant center stage. He gave his word to you and your parents that he would leave the movement. Clearly, he didn't, replied Aaron. It was at this exact moment, as those words escaped Aaron's lips, that Moises and Aaron's eyes met across the screaming, cheering throng. Aron couldn't understand how, under such circumstances, Wazes would notice him in the crowd. Perhaps it was a matter of genetics or sibling telepathy or serendipity, but it had happened. Wazes smiled and nodded. Arone did the same. They stood there for some time, unable to leave even if they wanted to. The crowd was too thick. Finally, as the revolution's young leaders finished speaking, it began to disperse. Hours passed. Aron and Beatrice were exhausted. They walked through the campus in the direction of Aron's apartment. As they made their way through the dawn, they passed the spot where Aron met Moises the night after the incident at San Miguel. Hermano, Aron heard from his right, the voice unmistakable. He stopped, Beatrice's hand still in his. He pulled her gently back as she turned Moises and Ana Teresa stepped out of the shadows. Buenos dias, brother, Aron said, people jostling by. He stepped forward to avoid the moving stream of bodies. This is Ana Teresa, Moisés said. Yes, I know, said Aaron. He extended his hand and tipped his head slightly. Ana Teresa took his hand firmly. It's nice to meet you finally, and this must be Beatriz. Oh, excuse me, said Aaron. Yes, mucho gusto, Ana Teresa offered, extending her hand to Beatriz. You were very impressive up there tonight, Beatriz said, taking Ana Teresa's hand in hers. Mucho gusto. Thank you. We're living in a new world now one where women will be equal partners. Beatriz hesitated for a moment. That's good, I believe, though I've always felt like an equal partner myself. Ana Teresa smiled. She measured her response. I'm happy to know that. May all of our sisters have that experience as we move forward. Yes, all, Aron said. A long, awkward moment filled the space between them. I hope we can put the past behind us now, said Mazez. I hope so, too, replied Aron. The rising sun peeking over the roofs of the buildings, filling the plaza. We'll see what comes next. Vamos a ver. It's a new day for Cuba and for us.
0: Oh you can feel the tension there.
1: Yeah. You know, it's the weirdest thing when you hear your own work read out loud, even when you're mm-hmm. you're reading it yourself. It's it's you it's almost disembodied, but thank you very much. Yeah.
0: Yes. Oh my god. Yep the readers have to go and get this book. It is amazing book. You did a fantastic job portraying these families and the reality of what was going on during that time.
1: Thank you so much. It was my pleasure to write it and, you know, to, to have spoken with all the people that I did and, and, and who I met and to bring this story to people all over the world, hopefully. It, it's important, it's an important story and it's important to understand the realities of what happened because these things are still happening today. Mm-hmm. There's, political, there's political upheaval everywhere and we need to keep in mind what has happened in the past so we don't, we don't make the same mistakes another time.
0: Yeah, exactly. The book is Incident at San Miguel by AJ dransky If you follow Latino Book Chat on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, please support the show by subscribing to the podcast on your favorite platform, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and iHeartRadio. Your support allows us to continue bringing to you the stories of our people told by amazing Latinx authors. Check out the books featured on the podcast at Nuestra Tienda on our online store at nicagal.com. A gal from Nicaragua. N-I-C-A-G-A-L.com, com. AJ Zidransky, thank you so much for chatting with us today on Latino Book Chat. It has been a pleasure to have you on the show.
1: Thank you. It's been my pleasure to be here. and Thank you for the invitation.
0: Thank you for joining us today. Visit us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at latinobookchat.com. Please subscribe on your favorite platform. Whatever you're listening to us today, please give us a positive review and as many stars as possible. Sharing the show will help it grow and continue to come to you. Thank you for your support. Hasta pronto. Latino BookChat is a production of Nicaragua Media. Today's episode was hosted, produced, and edited by Christian Meneses Jacobs.